Hello, and welcome back to Professor Kozlowski gradually having a psychological breakdown by screaming obscenities into a microphone while standing on a soapbox about various philosophers and psychologists. I mean, love and friendship. Um, yes, we are on round two of our huge boxing match with 19th century philosophy and its various really weird sort of attitudes and problematic philosophical assumptions. Today we're talking about Freud, folks, um, and I have not made any sort of attempt to hide the fact that I am not a fan. Um, I have been griping about Freud from day one. I have been grumpy about the sort of psychological assumptions that have been, you know, taking place in Freudian psychoanalysis and the, the sort of, you know, cultural groundswell that surrounds him. Um, but believe it or not, today I actually have some nice things to say about Freud, um, especially his third essay that we've read for today on, quote, civilized society. Um, it's time for us to actually confront this, and we definitely need to, like it is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the philosophy of love and friendship as we move into the 20th century. Um, Freud is a hugely important thinker. Um, but I also want to definitely start out today by laying down some hardcore ground rules and caveats. Um, I do not want to go into Freud unprepared. On, the, on some level, this is one of the most difficult lectures I have ever prepared for. Like I've got like two full note cards front and back that I just wrote up because I just don't feel comfortable charging into him, even though I feel like I understand what we're talking about here much better than I would have otherwise. Um, this is one of the first times I've read Freud, like in actuality, sat down with a work that Freud wrote in translation and attempted to read it and understand it and all that. Um, but because Freud is so important, he hovers around philosophy in late 19th and early 20th century philosophy a lot. So this is not my first time encountering his ideas, this is my first time encountering them in their natural habitat. Um, and I want to stress, again, like, there's a lot going on here. Um, everything that we talked about last time as far as the impact of Charles Darwin and this sort of you know, misinterpretation by way of social Darwinism is still in force here, and Freud is, at least to some degree, a victim of this. He is thinking along the same lines, that sexuality is the fundamental constituent of all human actions, like we talked about with Schopenhauer, like we talked about with Nietzsche. Um, he ascribes to this libidinal theory of human activity and psychology, um, which I chafe at quite a lot. Um, I don't see the justification for this. I don't believe that Darwin's origin of species and the observations that are made by Freud and other psychologists of his kind warrant this grand sweeping generalization that all human beings act only out of self-interest and specifically sexual self-interest. I just don't. Um, there's too much weird stuff out there to explain this particular behavior, and I think it damages our self-assessment. Um, like I talked about with the origin of species, we're doing a fundamentally different kind of science here. You know, it's one thing to... When we talked about how the scientific method came about, like during the scientific revolution into the Enlightenment, we discussed Francis Bacon and Descartes and 
Galileo, and all of those important thinkers who contributed to the development of the scientific method. Um, and the fundamental idea underlying the scientific method was that these scientific achievements, these scientific hypotheses, would be confirmed by experimentation that could be repeated frequently, that anyone could conduct these experiments and thus prove the truth of whatever scientific axiom is being proven. But when we wander into evolution territory, the reason why we call it a theory, even to this day, rather than, you know, scientific fact proven by repeated experimentation, is because you can't experiment with evolution. It takes millions of years for it to effectively work. Now, this is not to say that the basic truths of, of Darwin's theory aren't, you know, aren't valid. Like, obviously, human beings have been breeding cows and breeding dogs and breeding all sorts of animals for long enough to know that there are certain evolutionary characteristics that are, in fact, passed down from generation to generation and can be controlled through selective breeding. But that is a far, far cry from saying that it is the single and only principle that guides the development of the human species. Um, there are arguments that evolution has not successfully been able to answer, and I'm not talking about the missing link here. Um, we are talking about fundamental developments. If you ask an evolutionary theorist, an evolutionary biologist, how did life start? They will usually not have an answer for you because they have not been able to duplicate that particular phenomenon. And again, in order for this to achieve the status of scientific fact on order with the law of gravity, you've got to be able to demonstrate it. You've got to be able to show how it works. Until then, it is speculation in theory. Now, this is not me hating on the theory of evolution. This is me hating on the theory underlying a lot of this psychoanalysis stuff. Because as with the theory of evolution, there are some things that cannot be proven just because of the limitations of the apparatuses at stake here. Yes, we can look at tons of human beings and get a sense of how it is that they are constituted, why they behave the way that they behave. But to some degree, all investigation into the, quote, secret motives of human beings require a level of observation that is not available to us. No matter how many EKGs or CAT scans you perform, you're never going to know for sure whether a person is acting from a sexual motivation or from some rational motivation. You are never going to be able to determine why a person does what they do. It's not something observable. Um, so I want to stress that here. This whole business of libido theory, as much as Freud seems to think it is 100% true, as much as there are many philosophers in this time who accept it as established fact, as much as it ties into those sort of pernicious theories about social Darwinism and other crazy stuff down the road, you know, it is still theory. And, and the fact that we as a culture accept this theory, that we tend to agree with this theory, that you know this is the dominant understanding for why do humans behave the way they behave, should, at least in a philosophy class, make us all the more cautious when we are talking about it. We should be all the more resistant to its charms and to its allures. That's not to say that it's wrong. I am not going to argue one way or the other whether it is wrong. I don't know enough about it. If anything, I tend to stand with Hume on this one. I am agnostic about libido theory. I don't think that it can be proven, and I don't think that it is compelling enough for us to accept it as the dominant theory of human behavior. Um, but, as a consequence, 
I am going to, you know, poke holes at it. I am going to pick fights with it. Today, that means that I am in a strange sort of quandary, a conflict. Because as your professor, it is my job to present Freud in his best light, to defend everything that Freud has to say here, to, you know, present him in entirety the way that I have with Plato and with Aquinas and with Cicero and so on and so forth, presenting them the best light possible, presenting them for you to understand. Um, and I want to stress that. Like, when we go about talking about Freud today, my project here is going to be to try and get through his philosophy, psycho psychology, his system. What is he trying to say is going to be the first thing that I'm going to try and establish and achieve. And even more so than with many of the other philosophers that we've talked about to this point, I am going to try and restrain myself from weighing in or commenting on the individual components of his philosophy, the individual components of his psychoanalytical system, until we have successfully grasped and understood exactly what he's trying to say. We've got three Freud essays here on debasement, on narcissism, and on civilized society, and we will try and attract each one of these as a whole, grasp the entire structure of what he's saying, and then I'll make my comments. Then I will weigh in. Then I will talk about the potential applications, uh, the effects of what he's talking about here, what exactly it means for sexuality and the understanding of love historically as well as philosophically, and I'll put in my two cents and be like, and this is why I hate it. Um, but again, we're going to understand it first, and then we're going to pick it apart. Um, so that's, again, our approach for today. But the last thing I really need to warn you about is kind of personal. Um, having read this now, like this whole section in our Erotic Love textbook, these, these three little chunks of his various essays, um, I can say that I am more challenged personally by these writings than virtually anything else in this class. Like, yes, I got very worked up about Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, and for good reason, but I have played with those guys before. I know exactly what their foibles are, I know exactly what the problems are, I know exactly when to praise them, and I know exactly when to shit on them. Freud I'm less comfortable with. And what's more important is Freud is talking more personally. Where Nietzsche is just chucking darts at a wall and testing philosophy by challenging it, admittedly in a way that's a little bit inflammatory, as though he is the precursor to South Park, he is doing so with the professional distance that you would expect of a philosopher. He is, at the end of the day, speaking of abstractions. He is not trying to get at the personal motivations of people, although he will occasionally question them in the, in the large sense. It is really easy, as a consequence, to distance yourself from what Nietzsche is saying, or accusing or arguing. It is easy to, to say to yourself, yes, I observe that as well, but I don't do that, even if it is, in fact, hypocritical when you say this. For Freud, it is not so easy. Freud is definitely poking at the unconscious urges of human beings. He is questioning what makes us tick. And as a consequence, it's really easy to read through these texts and self-diagnose to say to yourself, why is it that I want 
you know, that I behave certain ways in the bedroom? Why is it that I find myself attracted to certain things and not attracted to others? Am I also psychically impotent or am I also frigid? Like the descriptions that he's laying down here are very easily applied to ourselves, especially because Freud himself is struggling to figure out exactly how widespread these neuroses and psychic problems actually are. Like, early on, and we'll talk about it in the first text, he comes to the conclusion that, yes, he's made a really solid theory for explaining psychic impotence. The problem with the theory is that it works too well. It theoretically should apply to everyone. And because it applies to everyone, it is very easy for us to say, oh no, it applies to me as well. I am also broken. I am also psychically malformed. I am also disturbed. Um... Don't do this. Like, I double down on the warning that I gave at the beginning of class. Do not self-diagnose. Do not look at yourself through this lens. As much as you should apply this to your experience in order to better understand it, do not take Freud at his word. Do not accept the categories that he is laying out here. Maybe think about the rationality that leads him to it. Think about the argumentation behind it. But do not start, you know, dumping on yourself because you think that you're messed up because of your latent feelings of attraction to your mother or your father or your sisters. Like, do not accuse yourself of incestuous desire. It's complicated. At the very least, Freud is going to suggest that this does exist in all of us, and yet he's going to call it abnormal which doesn't make any sense. If, in fact, all of us are affected by this, it is normal. And that means that incest is normal, and coprophilia is normal, and various sexual perversions or inversions are normal. Um, so, with this in mind, I am going to give you Professor Kozlowski's five-step guide to protecting you against Freud's accusations. This is what has been working for me as I've been reading and rereading, studying and annotating, trying to understand what Freud is saying, and also sort of doing so by processing it through my own experience and my own, you know, sexual behavior. First off, remember this and keep it in the back of your mind at all times. Freud is dead. Suck it, Freud. Like, he can't hurt us anymore. His arguments, as powerful as they may be, as much as they have influenced our contemporary outlooks, they are not the final word in psychoanalysis. They are not the final word in how exactly we work. This is, at the end of the day, just a theory and maybe not even a good one. There are many Freudian psychologists out there. Um, you will find, if you hang out in psychological circles, that a lot of people still take Freud very, very seriously. I am very distrustful of those psychologists. Freud was writing a hundred plus years ago. He is very dead. There have to be people who have done better work since, um, if only because they were able to build on his philosophy. And importantly, there are. Many Freudians have rejected large swaths of Freud's philosophy and psychology in favor of more, more uh, advanced, more nuanced, more detailed sorts of, of approaches and observations based on new experience, new data, new developments. Um, and likewise, Freud has many competitors. He is not even the dominant voice in psychology anymore, from what I understand. Like... 
depending on which branch of psychology you're looking at, whether you're looking at therapy or whether you're looking at actual psychoanalysis or whether you're looking at like big broad scale studies, you're going to see a widely different set of experiences, a widely different approach. Um, Freud is not the only voice out there. I personally, like, I became a philosophy major when I was an undergrad, and I studied philosophy extensively through that time. I went to get my master's in philosophy, and while getting my master's, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is a completely different approach to psychoanalysis, a completely different approach to therapy, a completely different approach to understanding how human minds work. And when I read that book, I literally said to my professor, it's a good thing I didn't read that during my undergrad or I would have become a psychology major. Because where I had been taught Freud in my psychology classes, I rejected it. I didn't agree with this stuff. I hated Freud. I have always hated Freud. There has never been a time when Professor Kozlowski has not rankled at the thought of Freud, you know, picking apart my brain with his self-assured, you know, German accent, saying to himself, well, maybe you are actually acting out of... No, no. You don't get to tell me what I'm actually acting out of. If, you, if my words and my beliefs are not enough to convince you, if you think that there are other motivations at stake here, then you have a conversation with me and you tell me exactly why you think what you do and we can hash this out. And I can look at my own experience, judge it accordingly, and maybe we can come to some conclusion. But you don't get to tell me who I am and what I believe out aside from my own experience. Frankel, on the other hand, he was saying that absolutely people should be integral to this, to this process, that we need to evaluate ourselves rationally. He sees human beings as driven not by secret libidinal urges that underlie all human activity, but rather as being driven towards purpose, seeking self-affirmation in accomplishments, in suffering, in all sorts of things that, that philosophers have been saying for many years. Where I am absolutely disgusted by Freud, I am, was absolutely in love with Frankel. There's lots of good psychology out there. So as much as I am going to absolutely, you know, sit there grinding my axe as I talk about Freud, don't think that this is a blanket condemnation of therapy. Like, psychology is not a bankrupt science, not by any extent of the imagination. They do great things for lots of people. It is an important branch of the sciences. I have nothing against the institution of psychologists, the whole study of psychology. I do want to keep it straight. Like, I practice philosophy, they practice psychology. It is two very different things. But the reason why it is two very different things is exactly why I don't trust Freud. Because Freud is essentially using philosophical methods to do psychology, where I specifically respect psychologists for using completely different methods than philosophers. Don't come into my territory, is kind of what I'm saying to Freud. You are very much stepping on the border of what we as philosophers do. Um, so keep that in mind. This is sort of my second defense against Freud. Keep the evidence in mind. Um, psychology, for the, for the large part, is divided into two sort of branches, two d different ways of getting information about how the mind works. On the one hand, you have the statistical evidence. Like, you do surveys, you get lots of information from lots of different people, you conduct experiments in a laboratory environment, you get, like, whole bunches of people to perform a certain set of tasks, and then you observe their specific reactions to certain stimuli, whether it's something as potentially scary as, like, Skinner box experiments, or something as, you know, utterly benign as, like, walking into a room where a whole bunch of people are taking a test and firing a starter's pistol. Like... 
there's tons of data that is gained through these uh, experiments. There is tons of data that is collected through these kinds of surveys. And it's very valuable and it's very important. As much as I have emphasized that science is all about experimentation and repeated results, this is when psychology is doing the experimentation and repeated results thing, and it tends to work really well. Statistical evidence is a different order of information, a different order of science than like repeatable laboratory conditions with chemicals and like physical processes, but that doesn't make it any less relevant or any less valid. That is important work that's being done and it's really good work that, that benefits a lot of us in a lot of different ways. The other side of psychology is case studies. And I am not going to sit here and dump on case studies. Like, I think case studies also have a great deal of potential to be valuable and important to our understanding of the way the mind works, the way the brain works, the way that, you know, human beings interact with each other, what their motivations are, etc., etc., etc. Like, I remember tons of examples when I was taking Psych 101 once upon a time of, like, people who had a railroad spike stuck into their brain, and as a consequence, they could only, like, speak in, you know, like, mad, nonsensical uh, sentences. Like, obviously... That's not something you can repeat. You cannot go around sticking railroad spikes into people's heads, psychologists, no matter what the Nazis were doing. Um, this, too, is valuable information. You know, read Oliver Sacks, the man who took his who mistook his wife for a hat sometime, and you will see some absolutely fascinating case studies about how the brain works and how the brain doesn't work in some cases. From what I understand, though, the trick here is that while there are certain centers in the brain, like language centers and, you know, centers reserved for, like, control of various motor, bodily motor processes, like, all of that is, you know, fairly fuzzy at best. The brain changes. It is different for every single person. It develops differently for every single person. Comparing it to a fingerprint does an injustice to the brain. It is a such a complex instrument and is so totally unique for every single different person that as much as, you know, some brain chemistry can in fact boil down, like if you get a railroad spike stuck through you at this particular point, this will happen. And if you get it stuck on the other side of the brain, this will happen. Like, that's great. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that the same person or everybody is going to react the same way to the same situation. And that's the trouble with Freud's kind of case studies. He is not looking at scientific observable evidence. He is not looking at case studies of people who have demonstrably, like empirically verifiable problems. He is talking about case studies where he is talking back and forth in a psychoanalytical environment, and he is coming to certain conclusions that he then applies broadly to people at large. And that is always dangerous. It is not to say that it doesn't necessarily have truth. It doesn't mean that it's totally bankrupt. It just means that he is occasionally not careful enough with the conclusions that he is making in the environment in which he's making them. Psychoanalysts have a tendency, especially when they are working in Freud's tradition, of sort of leading their patients to certain conclusions that fit with their assumptions and observations. And patients, as a rule, tend to go along with this. Because patients are looking for a solution to their problems, and as a consequence, they are willing to accept whatever the psychoanalyst is willing to tell them is going wrong with them. And this is a problem. There's tons of misdiagnoses out there, like tons of undiagnosed mental illness. It's a problem. This is happening today. Like, 
It's not to say that the psychological apparatus is broken or that psychologists are devious and trying to... Like, I'm not trying to foster conspiracy theories here. It's a messy subject. It's difficult. It takes a lot of work, a lot of careful study, and a lot of problems can come out of people who are doing it hastily or even doing the best that they can and just not having sufficient data or sufficient evidence to work with. We are trying to figure this out. The brain is really tricky to figure out. So keep this in mind. Freud is using a hacksaw to do precision work. Um, and that's not a slight against Freud. A hacksaw is the best tool he's got. They're trying to figure out what psychology is at this point in time. They're, you know, honing the methods that will actually be useful and powerful in the generations to come. But we're not there yet. Um, and Freud seems more confident than is warranted in his conclusions based on the actual evidence that he's accumulated and the methods that he's using. So be careful on that front as well. Freud is not, as I said, the final arbiter of what constitutes the human psyche. He is using kind of clumsy tools in a pretty clumsy environment to come to what will necessarily be clumsy solutions, clumsy conclusions. So feel free to keep that in mind as you are reading through Freud, and thus protect yourself accordingly. The next thing I want to stress is he is a product of the 19th century. Just as we said about Schopenhauer and Darwin, the same applies here. A lot of the 19th century's really bad ideas are hanging out in Freud as well, and I should stress especially when we get to the end of this reading, Freud is going to be one of the forces that corrects a lot of these bad ideas. He is not immune to their effects. He is not immune to the bad language that is being employed. He is just going to be subordinate to that to some degree. He is changing his opinion and changing his mind, changing his understanding because he is observing and he is carefully looking through this. He is looking through a lens that he is gradually coming to realize is stunted, is broken, is, you know, is failing in many ways. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So most importantly, like above all, more than any of the other suggestions I, I'm going to give you, keep in mind when Freud says normal, or when Freud says abnormal, when Freud calls people perverse, or when Freud calls people disturbed, ignore him. Like, this is the most concrete advice I can give you. Like, ignore Freud when he is making normative assessments. We'll talk about how that works and how that fits into his overall psychology later. But for now, when you are reading him for the first time, when you are approaching him, like, for your own sanity, for your own self-protection, pay no attention to Freud's normative assessments. Um, he doesn't know what he's talking about on this one. He is working in categories very much entrenched and established in the 19th century and categories that he himself is going to chafe against and break out of eventually. There is no normal. Um, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. But especially in Freud's day, what he, con what he considered normal, what he considered psychologically deviant versus psychologically acceptable, what he considers productive for civilization may not be at all what is normal or productive or good or any of those things. He is locked in that perspective. Um, 
And he is careful about this in many cases. Sometimes he will say, you know, it is not a psychologist's job to make these sorts of assessments, but merely to observe. That's Freud being responsible. Hooray for Freud, recognizing his limitations. Again, there's a huge distinction between psychology and philosophy. And at least until this point, the only science that is engaged in discussing about what is good or bad, what is normal or abnormal, what is right or wrong, requires a lot more work than either of them alone can accomplish. Um, so do not accept Freud's categories. Do not accept his normative ex sort of assertions about people. Um, there are, for the purposes of this class, no normal minds and no abnormal minds. Um, the only time that I will talk about them is either in the context that another philosopher is giving us, or when I am talking about it in terms of, like, wildly different, or wildly bad, or wildly pernicious in some way. Um, and all of that should have caveats and asterisks attached to it, whether or not I'm appropriately, you know, paying due to those caveats and asterisks. Um, so again, when Freud is getting uppity about normal and abnormal behavior, when he is getting uppity about the perverts or the perverse in general, feel free to ignore him. Um, we'll talk about exactly how that's going to work later on. Um, lastly, and this is perhaps, you know, kind of just an afterthought by comparison, keep in mind that Freud is working with a very specific set of people. Um, all of Freud's conclusions are based on his observations with people who have come to him because they themselves consider themselves psychologically unhealthy for one reason or another. Um, and this is an important observation to make. This is an important sort of detail. Again, any psychologist worth their salt is not going to be going around in the supermarket diagnosing people according to their behavior. No, the fundamental assumption underlying the entire profession of therapists and psychologists is that the people who are coming to them are themselves unhappy with the way their lives are going and unhappy with the way their minds are behaving. They wouldn't pay so much to go see a psychologist otherwise. Um, and the only exception to this is when, you know, the court system tells them to. So we are now talking about criminality as an assumption or something comparable to criminality. In either case, whether it's contemporary psychologists talking to contemporary unhappy people or Freud talking to specifically unhappy people in the 19th century, we should stress these are, by their very nature, abnormal. Most people do not want to walk into a psychologist's office and just have a conversation about how broken their brain is. Like, maybe today it's more common than it was in the 19th century, but it's still, there's a certain stigma attached to it. There's a certain amount of discomfort, displeasure, sadness, or dysfunction that is observable to the person themselves that provides the impetus by which these people go and get diagnosed. Um, and as a consequence, we should not take them for the standard by which all human beings are judged. It's not to say that they're not. It's not to say that they are. Um, it's just to acknowledge that they fulfill a certain category. And Freud, again, by not being terribly careful about his methods or his tools, is willing to take this sort of test case, this group of people who are, by their own admission, sort of dysfunctional or unhappy or however you want to understand it, and taking that as 
given for everyone. And again, we'll talk about exactly why he does that, where he sort of makes that conclusion, um, but just keep that in mind. Like, when you are protecting yourself against Freud, when you are reading this text and thinking to yourself, oh no, what if this is me? Keep these things in mind. Freud is not 100% reliable, he is very dead, and many more accomplishments have been made about psychology since then that absolutely transcend and surpass Freud. He is very much a product of his time. Um, he is very much talking to a biased sample of human beings, and again, most importantly, he is calling people normal and abnormal and has very little right to do so. Um, so keep those things in mind, and hopefully you will be inoculated against the sort of self-paranoia that Freud frequently encourages. At least that's what helped me get through it. Like, it's been a rough couple of days studying Freud in preparation for this lecture, especially right on the heels of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Like, what the heck? Oh, the 18th century is so messed up. I'm going to be so glad when we finally move on to Christendom in the next lecture. Oh, you, you can't even... I can't even... Alright, so... Caveats and preparation and fanfare and introduction aside, let's actually jump in and see what Freud has to say. Um, so we'll start with this excerpt from the first essay on the universal tendency to debasement in the sphere of love. Um, and again, keep all those things in mind, but now we are just going to try and understand what Freud is saying here. Um, now, we start right from the beginning. If the practicing psychoanalyst asks himself on account of what disorder people most often come to him for help, he is bound to reply, disregarding the many forms of anxiety, that it is psychical impotence. This singular disturbance affects men of strongly libidinous natures and manifests itself in a refusal by the executive organs of sexuality to carry out the sexual act, although before and after they may show themselves to be intact and capable of performing the act, and although a strong psychical inclination to carry it out is present. So, in this essay, we are talking about impotence. Men are coming to Freud in great numbers, again, he says that it's like the second most common ailment that he observes in his patients after the various forms of anxiety, and these people are coming to him and saying, Doctor, I can't get off. He wants to, the desire is there, but he cannot actually accomplish it. Like he says, the executive organs of sexuality are refusing to carry out the sexual act. He is impotent, in short. His penis is not remaining erect during intercourse, to be perfectly biological about it, like less delicate than Freud is even being here. Now Freud notices that this typically arises only when the attempt is made with certain individuals, whereas with others there is never any question of such a failure. This is the first clue that he observes further on in the same paragraph on page 155. He also, many of these people also report a sensation of a counterwill, which successfully interferes with his conscious intention, as though he is working against some part of himself that works, that is trying to keep him impotent in some way. Like there is a roadblock in his mind, um, and he, and this person, this patient is observing this fact. Um, now, Freud acknowledges at the very bottom of this paragraph, if he has had repeated experience of a failure of this kind, he is likely, by the familiar process of erroneous connection, to decide that the recollection of the first occasion evoked the disturbing anxiety idea and so called the, caused the failure to be repeated each time, while he derives the first occasion itself from some, quote, accidental impression. 
So Freud also acknowledges that many of these people who are coming to him with this impotence, they have the first accident in some, as they describe it, and again, Freud uses the quotes here, um, something that happens seemingly out of the blue, and as a consequence, they cannot, in fact, stay erect or get off or whatever the case may be. And it is recollecting that, fearing that, that causes the repeated incidents in many cases. So Freud acknowledges this is bound up with anxiety as well. Um, which is, again, responsible of him. Like, there is a spiraling sort of behavior that is that is bound up in this, this impotence business. Um, now, as he goes on in the next paragraph, psychoanalytic studies of psychical impotence have already been carried out and published by several writers. Every analyst can confirm the explanations provided for, by them from, their, from his own clinical experience. It is, in fact, a question of the inhibitory influence of certain psychical complexes which are withdrawn from the subject's knowledge. An incestuous fixation on mother or sister, which has never been surmounted, plays a prominent part in this pathogenic material and is its most universal content. In addition, there is the influence to be considered of accidental distressing impressions concerned with infantile sexual activity, and also those factors which in a general way reduce the libido that is to be directed onto the female sexual object. So, keep in mind, here we are working with potentially problematic sources, but again, trying to keep my head out of this. Freud acknowledges many studies have been made on this particular subject, and in many cases they are attached to one of two things, either an incestuous desire for mother or sister or one of the other people in the family, people who obviously they're not allowed to have sex with, or there are certain distressing impressions connected with infantile sexual activity. So when, as a child, they were sort of coming to sexual awareness, they experienced some trauma that caused them to sort of dissociate or, other, or have some other problem that will then sort of follow them into adulthood. Um, now... Freud divides this into Freud divides the libido into two currents that he sees as having a conflict, and this is why we have this impotence problem. So in the final page on page 155, or final paragraph on page 155, he writes, um, When striking cases of psychical impotence are exhaustively investigated by means of psychoanalysis, the following information is obtained about the psychosexual processes at work in them. Here again, as very probably in all neurotic disturbances, the foundation of the disorder is provided by an inhibition in the developmental history of the libido before it assumes the form which we take to be its normal termination. Two currents whose union is necessary to ensure a completely normal attitude in love have, in the cases we are considering, failed to combine. These two may be distinguished as the affectionate and the sensual current. So, let's recap a little bit and let's backtrack a little bit. Freud is assuming that the development of the libido is causing these psychological impotent cases. He is saying that this is responsible for the breaks that these people are, are uh, experiencing, that their impotence is related to a failure for the sexual currents to develop. Now this assumes, again, that the entire development of sexuality is responsible for these libidinal impulses, that there is this sort of sexual identity that is built through infancy, through childhood, through puberty and adolescence into adulthood, and at some point it reaches its final termination, its conclusion. The libido is now formed totally through this process. 
And once it is formed, if it is formed with defects in some way, due to some misalignment of, of sexual desire or through these, again, sort of mislocated currents, that will sort of sit there quietly, not actually uh, developing in any way, until the person hits adulthood, at which point, when the sexual impulses sort of naturally decline through age and through, you know, normal human experience, suddenly it sort of reveals the fact that these underlying problems were there the whole time. Um, this is the sort of assumption, the sort of structure that he's building here. Uh, but let's look at these two currents and how they interact. So he starts by saying that on page 156, the affectionate current is the older of the two. It springs from the earliest years of childhood. It is formed on the basis of the interests of the self-preservative instinct and is directed to the members of the family and those who look after the child. From the very beginning, it carries along with it contributions from the sexual instincts, components of erotic interest, which can already be seen more or less clearly even in childhood and in any event are uncovered in erotics by psychoanalysis later on. I'm staying quiet. It's corris it corresponds to the child's primary object choice. We learn in this way that the sexual instincts find their first objects by attaching themselves to the valuations made by the ego instincts, precisely in the way in which the first sexual satisfactions are experienced in attachment to the bodily functions necessary for the preservation of life. The affection shown by the child's parents and those who look after him, which Zeldin fails to betray its erotic nature, the child is an erotic plaything, does a very great deal to raise the contributions made by erotism to the capexes of his ego instincts and to increase them to an amount which is bound to play a part in his later development, especially when certain other circumstances lend their support. Freud is using a lot of jargon here. He is being very, very cautious about what he is explaining. But the abstraction basically yields a fairly concrete picture. Namely, when you are an infant and when you are a small child, you attach affection to the people who provide you with your basic bodily needs. The people who provide you with food, the people who provide you with water, the people who provide a safe space for you to sleep and to live. Namely, your mother and your father, your sisters and your brothers, the people in your immediate family or the caretakers in your life. Freud attaches this frequently to the business of nursing. So when you are an infant and you are suckling at a woman's breast, you attach not just these sort of affectionate instincts, but also this whole erotic complex to the people who are providing you with this. There is an, a, there is an erotic dimension a, you know, sexual dimension to the affection you feel for your parents, for your siblings, for, you know, whoever takes care of you. Um, this is a necessary part of childhood development. It is bound up with these things. Now, again, Freud assumes these things. He seems to have cause for it. We're not going to question that here because, again, we're just trying to understand them. These affectionate fixations of the child, he continues, persist throughout childhood and continually carry along with them erotism, which is consequently diverted from its sexual aims. Then at the age of puberty, they are joined by the power-sensual current, which no longer mistakes its aims. It never fails, apparently, to follow the earlier paths and to cathect the objects of the primary infantile choice with quotas of libido that are now far stronger. Here, however, it runs up against the obstacles that have been erected in the meantime by the barrier against incest. Consequently, it will make efforts to pass on from these objects, which are unsuitable in reality, and find a way as soon as possible to other extraneous objects with which a real sexual life may be carried on. So, 
Through childhood, we have attached all of our sexuality to affection. The feeling that we have for our parents, for the various people in our life who give us things, who make us feel safe, who we sort of attach our, our identity to. However, in puberty, we start to develop sexually, and as is sort of to be expected in this case, we attach these sexual feelings to the same people who we attached the affectionate feelings before, i.e. we lust after our mother, after our father, after our sisters, after our brothers. This, however, civilization immediately rejects. You are not allowed to feel that way about these people. And as a consequence, these incestuous feelings have to be repressed. And the puberty, or the pubescent person, the pubescent child, has to cast about for a new, more appropriate object to sort of post their, their sexual feelings, their sexual attraction onto. Freud continues, these new objects will still be chosen on the model, the imago, of the infantile ones, but in the course of time they will attract them to themselves the affection that was tied to the earlier ones. A man shall leave his father and his mother, according to the biblical command, and shall cleave unto his wife. Affection and sensuality are then united. The greatest intensity of sensual passion will bring with it the highest psychical valuation of the object, this being the normal overvaluation of the sexual object on the part of the man. Again, we're just going to ignore the term overvaluation. I have no idea what Freud means by this. And at the very least, it certainly seems to suggest, again, this kind of normative behavior that just doesn't make any sense under the context. Like, how can all men overvalue sexual... Just, no. Anyway, notice what Freud is functionally suggesting here. Frustrated in one's incestuous desires, frustrated by this original union of the affectionate desire with the sexual desire, you are now presented with the challenge of finding inappropriate objects, specifically a wife or a husband, you know, a lover of some kind, someone whose society is willing to tolerate you having sexual feelings and expressing those sexual feelings toward. This is how people are supposed to develop, according to Freud. This is the natural sexual development. Um, you go from your affections that you attach during childhood, you take those affections and you now attach them to a new source. But that does not change the fact that you were originally attracted to, originally affectionate towards those original people. So what you are essentially doing as a human being is taking your original attraction to your parents and now substituting somebody else in their place. In short, you take a wife because you can't sleep with your mother. You take a husband because you can't sleep with your father. However you want to understand this. And again, this sort of ties into Freud's whole theory of the Oedipus complex, the Electra complex, it's this whole thing. And I don't really want to get into it here. Suffice it to say, this is his argument for, you know, how people develop. This is the baseline. This is the control group. Now, two factors will decide whether this advance in the developmental path of the libido is to fail. First, there is the amount of frustration in reality, which opposes the new object choice and reduces its value for the person concerned. There is, after all, no point in embarking upon an object choice if no choice is to be allowed at all, or if there is no prospect of being able to choose anything suitable. Secondly, there is the amount of attraction which the infantile objects that have to be relinquished are able to exercise, and which is in proportion to the erotic cathexis attaching to them in childhood. If these two factors are sufficiently strong, the general mechanism by which the neuroses are formed 
comes into operation. The libido turns away from reality, is taken over by imaginative activity, the process of introversion, strengthens the image of the first sexual objects, and becomes fixated to them. The obstacle raised against incest, however, compels the libido that is turned to these objects to remain in the unconscious. The masturbatory activity carried out by the sensual current, which is now part of the unconscious, makes its own contribution in strengthening this vexation. Skip down a little farther. In this way, it can happen that the whole of a young man's sensuality becomes tied to incestuous objects in the unconscious, or to put it another way, becomes fixated to unconscious incestuous fantasies. The result is then total impotence, which is perhaps further ensured by the simultaneous onset of an actual weakening of the organs that perform the sexual act. So, Freud now has his explanation of how psychical impotence occurs. If you are unable to detach your affection slash sexual attraction from your mother, from your parents, from your sisters and brothers, if you are still frustrated by them, rather than seek a new object to perform as substitute, instead you internalize your feelings. You turn to masturbation. You experience fantasies. Your unconscious does not reveal to you that you are in fact attracted to your to your family members, that you are in fact incestuously inclined, the unconscious is protecting you from this. It is therefore turning that into an unconscious desire, something that you yourself as an ego will never actually experience or have to face, and instead you just deal with these fantasies. Um, you masturbate instead of having sex with another person. Now, Continuing forward, less severe conditions are required to bring about the state known specifically as psychical impotence. Here the fate of the sensual current must not be that its whole charge has to conceal itself behind the affectionate current. It must have remained sufficiently strong or uninhibited to secure a partial outlet into reality. The sexual activity of such people shows the clearest signs, however, that it has not the whole psychical driving force of the instinct behind it. It is capricious easily disturbed, often not properly carried out, and not accompanied by much pleasure. But above all, it is forced to avoid the affectionate current. A restriction has thus been placed on object choice. The sensual current that has remained active seeks only objects which do not recall the incestuous figures forbidden to it. If someone makes an impression that might lead to a high psychical estimation of her, this impression does not find an issue in any sensual excitation, but an affection which has no erotic effect. The whole sphere of love in such people remains divided in the two directions personified in art as sacred and profane, or animal, love. Where they love, they do not desire, and where they desire, they cannot love. So notice what we're describing here. In the first case, the people who just turn entirely to a sort of introversion, to you know, masturbation and indulgence in these you know, quasi-incestuous fantasies, not revealed as incestuous to them by the unconscious, which is protecting the ego. In the cases of people who are less strongly inclined towards their sub towards their original affected objects, now these people, rather than sort of centering all of their sexual energy on themselves and their fantasies, instead they are dividing their psyche, separating the affectionate current that they experienced in childhood from the sensual current that has developed in puberty. And by separating them completely, they find themselves torn between two potential objects. On the one hand, there are the people they love, they feel affection towards, and on the other, there are the people they desire sexually. But importantly for these people, they cannot have the same person be both. 
This is not acceptable to their psychic perspective. Again, they have been told that the people they feel affection for, the people they love, the people they respect, the people who took care of them, the people who they attached their affection to in childhood, are forbidden from having a sexual component to that relationship. That is not allowed. You are not allowed to sleep with your mother. You are not allowed to sleep with your sister. You are not allowed to sleep with your father or your brother or your cousins or whatever. Therefore, this association becomes permanent. You cannot desire sexually the one who you love affectionately. So the sensual desire instead turns towards a secondary object, someone who one can safely not feel affectionate towards, not love. So, Freud concludes in the second paragraph on page 158, the main protective measure against such a disturbance which men have recourse to in this split in their love consists in a psychical debasement of the sexual object. The overvaluation that normally attaches to the sexual object being reserved for the incestuous object and its representatives. As soon as the condition of debasement is fulfilled, sensuality can be freely expressed, and important sexual capacities and a high degree of pleasure can develop. There is a further factor which contributed, contributes to this result. People in whom there has not been a proper confluence of the affectionate and the sensual currents do not usually show much refinement in their modes of behavior and love. They have retained perverse sexual aims, whose non-fulfillment is felt as a serious loss of pleasure, and whose fulfillment, on the other hand, seems possible only with a debased and despised sexual object. So, in short, the solution to this division between the affectionate on the one hand and the sensual on the other, is that you will now have people who you love and respect, who you will no longer feel sexual attraction for, and you will have people who you do not respect, who you debase, in order to experience that sexual pleasure and release. So, men in a marriage are forced to debase their wives in order to enact their actual sexual desires. And, Freud acknowledges and again, we have to be careful of the normative language here, that because the perverse desires that were not successfully sort of dealt with in childhood are still there, are still a part of their sexual composition, they enact perverse behavior on these debased people. Whether it is, you know, the person that they love, but they are no longer seeing them as the person they love, but instead as a debased version of themselves, like they are purely sexual object during the sexual act, or whether they are, in fact, a secondary object entirely. The guy can't get off with his wife because he loves her, therefore he gets off with a prostitute, or with, you know, a mistress, somebody who he doesn't respect, and because he doesn't respect them, he can, in fact, enjoy his time with them. He can, in fact, experience pleasure, because it is no longer sort of attached to that original childhood affection incest uh, taboo. So, here is the system that Freud is presenting to us. This is his explanation for this psychical impotence. You have these two dis dislocated currents, and therefore you have two fundamental outlets for your, for your feelings. On the one hand, affection, which is again, characterized as the sacred kind of love. On the other hand, debasement, the sexual attraction, which is only allowed to this profane kind of love. 
And it is really easy to sort of see the entire history of love and philosophy as falling into these two categories. Here we have Dante, who has idolized his beautiful, beloved Beatrice, and therefore, you know, doesn't actually have any sexual feelings whatsoever. Or perhaps go even farther back to Ibn Sina, saying that, like, if you actually sexually desire someone, that is profane, or wrong, or sinful, whereas if you want to spend time with another person, embrace them, even kiss them, that's acceptable, and therefore an, an instinct that your love is pure, that it is motivated by affection and not sexuality. It is easy to see this as playing into contemporary sort of artistic tropes, the sort of Madonna horror complex, where, you know, some women are sacred and beautiful and wonderful and you will never have sex with them because they are too good for you, where there are other women who are base, profane, wrong, sinful, however, and therefore you feel comfortable having sex with them because sex debases you as well in some sense. This is the model that we are being presented with, and it is a very powerful one. It probably sounds familiar, or it sounds right to you in some sense, because again, our culture tends to agree with Freud's take on this. This is not nearly as objectionable as some of Freud's other arguments. It seems to make sense. But, and we should stress this, Freud immediately sees a problem with his explanation for psychical impotence. In this first paragraph under the dots on page 158, he says, We have reduced psychical impotence to the failure of the affection of the sensual currents and love to combine, and this developmental inhibition has in turn been explained as being due to the influences of strong childhood fixations and of later frustration in reality through the intervention of the barrier against incest. There is one principal objection to the theory we advance. It does too much. It explains why certain people suffer from psychical impotence, but leaves us with the apparent mystery of how others have been able to escape this disorder. Since we must recognize that all the relevant factors known to us, the strong childhood fixation, the incest barrier, and the frustration in the years of development after puberty, are to be found in practically all civilized human beings, we shouldn't be justified in expecting psychical impotence to be a universal affliction under civilization, and not a disorder confined to some individuals. Notice what Freud is suggesting here. He is saying, yes, we were originally setting out to diagnose psychical impotence, but in doing so, we have only based our understanding of psychical imp impotence on universally applicable conditions. Everybody should feel this. This is a universal condition of human beings. We all feel an affection towards our parents and these people who we are then refused access to sexually, and therefore are forced to dislocate our sexuality from our actual affection and, you know, strong feelings for people. Love becomes not sexual, and sexuality becomes detached from love. This is what Freud is saying. Like, why don't we all do this in some way? All of this would apply to everyone. Now, again, we should have a lot of questions about this. Like, if this is in fact the case, then on the one hand, it, it shouldn't be abnormal. Like, we shouldn't like or make this normative or blame the people who experience this phenomenon in some way. And indeed, most psychologists nowadays, I suspect, if they are in fact in Freud's explanation for this sort of phenomenon, probably see this as being purely a matter of degree and not of kind. It's not a matter that some people are impotent and some people are not, but rather we are all experiencing a degree of impotence to some degree, and therefore there shouldn't be any stigma attached to it. Um, that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind in this particular situation and occasion. Um, 
So as Freud says, I shall put forward the view that psychical impotence is much more widespread than is supposed, and that a certain amount of this behavior does in fact characterize the love of civilized man. But notice, too, that what Freud is suggesting here is that civilization is fundamentally, is fundamentally opposed to the experience of love in some sense. Namely, that by sort of prohibiting incest, by making strict sort of restrictions on who exactly you can have sex with and who exactly it is, is forbidden to you, civilization is getting in the way of appropriate sexual development. But Freud also emphasizes that, you know, just saying, okay, well, let's not, let's remove the incest taboo and just let people have sex with their parents and stuff. That, too, is not the solution here. Um, on page 161, the paragraph between the two sets of dots stresses the fact that the curve put upon love by civilization involves a universal tendency to debase sexual objects will perhaps lead us to turn to our attention from the object to the instincts themselves. The damage caused by the initial frustration of sexual pleasure is seen in the fact that the freedom later given to that pleasure in marriage does not bring full satisfaction. But at the same time, if sexual freedom is unrestricted from the outset, the result is no better. It can easily be shown that the psychical value of erotic needs is reduced as soon as their satisfaction becomes easy. An obstacle is required in order to heighten libido. And where natural resistances to satisfaction have not been sufficient, men have at all times erected conventional ones so as to be able to enjoy love. This is true both of individuals and of nations. In times in which there were no difficulties standing in the way of sexual love, uh, in the way of sexual satisfaction, such as perhaps during the decline of the ancient civilizations, love became worthless and life empty, and strong reaction formations were required to restore indispensable effective values. In this connection, it may be claimed that the ascetic current in Christianity created psychical values for love which pagan antiquity was never able to confer on, upon it. Notice what Freud is suggesting here. The incest taboo is important to the development of libido. Libido becomes stronger when there are obstacles put in its place. Now, it's hard not to read Foucault into this, honestly, at least not in my experience, because, again, I taught Foucault earlier and sort of anticipating that this time would come, and I definitely wanted to put Freud in context. Remember that Foucault is suggesting that, you know, like, love and sexuality, the expression of sexuality very much relies on this sort of secretiveness, this forbiddenness, the obstacles in its development. Freud is observing the same phenomenon here, and he is even suggesting that Christianity, by placing so many taboos on sexuality, by making it so like strongly debased, or by making it so profane in some way, has in fact heightened the sexual experience. Under Christianity, people experience more sexual satisfaction, more sexual pleasure, than they would have in, say, ancient Greece when those proscriptions didn't exist. The more proscriptions against sexuality, the stronger the sexual desire becomes. Freud's conclusion, therefore, is that there is no way out of this trap. Um, either you are going to end up in the psychical impotent situation where you sort of misalign your affectionate and your sensual impulses, or you are going to end up completely devaluing both, and your sexuality is going to be this sort of tepid, weak thing that doesn't actually have any real um, significance to your life whatsoever. And I want to stress, Freud is making this sort of dichotomy, this sort of set of possibilities, 
out to be relative to some center point, which is apparently unachievable. Like, notice what Freud is essentially assuming here. He is essentially assuming that people should have a strong sexual impulse, and that indeed all pleasure should derive from this sexual uh, sexual impulse. That, like, there is apparently some standard of sexual pleasure that Freud is pointing to here that we cannot achieve, but which we are always steps away from, which we always want to achieve. Freud is suggesting that we are therefore broken in some way, that civilization in some way breaks us. And I want to push back against that especially. That seems to be the obvious oversight in what Freud is saying here. If, in fact, this is the case, if, in fact, our sexuality is, in fact, bound up with these complex relationships, then it seems to me that either one of these potential solutions isn't necessarily good or bad, but just an alternative to solving the sexual enigma in some case. By all means, stack on all those taboos and experience this tremendous sexual pleasure. Alternatively, Maybe devalue sex and make that not the center of your life. Instead, turn your libidinous desires into sublimation, as he's going to talk about in the, the uh, essay later on civilized morality and nervous illness. Um, Freud is assuming some sort of ideal person that Freud has never personally met or experienced. Freud is assuming some sort of sexual ideal, some sexual purpose, some, you know, central galvanizing force here that, again, doesn't seem either possible or even desirable in some cases. Um, sexuality for Freud is still confused. And much though this explanation is, again, very convincing, very compelling. It's hard to argue against it. I'm not even going to try here. Like, this whole business of, you know, the affections and the sensuality and being attracted to one's parents. Like, I am less interested in arguing that this is part of one's psychological makeup. I am less interested in saying, you know, no, you were never at any point attracted to your mother than I am in saying, so what? So why get upset about it? Why be mad about it? Like, if you are discontent with your expression, why not? You know, what is wrong with debasing a person if you are conscious of the fact that you were doing it and you were, you know, in a relationship where you can express this to the other person? Or alternatively, why do I need my libido to be so strong in the first place? Like, our conclusion in modern society typically is relatively unrestricted sexual freedom, with, of course, the taboo of incest still in place, so there is, of course, some disconnect going on here. But if anything, I suspect that the, that the answer that our civilization has made is, all right, so go ahead and have sex, and as a consequence, we have devalued it. We have turned it into what Freud is suggesting here as being less important. And this is a viable solution. Why not disconnect our identity from our sexuality? Why should sex play such a strong role in our lives? The assumption that Freud is making that libido needs to be this powerful thing, this overmastering thing, this incredibly pleasurable thing, kind of suggests an assumption that Freud himself couldn't see past it. Um, so I want to sort of just poke at that, at least leave that on the table. Um, for our purposes, though, keep in mind that this is how sexuality is understood going forward. Not necessarily in terms of psychical impotence, yes, I know that that's sort of a specific kind of argument that Freud is making here, but think about the greater context here. Think about how all of our philosophers up until this point 
have been trying to navigate the sort of complex relationship between sexuality and love. And Freud is now saying here that sexuality is fundamentally opposed to civilization. That sexuality cannot be properly and completely realized in civilized society. This is not something that the philosophers have been kicking around at any point. Like, yes, there was that whole period in Christendom where Christianity was like, yes, sexuality can only exist in these particular situations and should be restricted in all others, and that would have a seemingly similar relationship to what Freud is talking about. But Freud is also a product of Christianity. He doesn't know a world that is not informed by Christian moral values, by Christian uh, sort of priorities regarding sexuality and regarding sort of sexual fulfillment. He sees civilization as being opposed to sexuality because Christians have always opposed sexuality to civilization. It's hard to get a sense of what a, quote, pure human sexuality unaffected by these sorts of outs outside factors, unaffected by a society that itself divorces sexuality from fulfillment, would actually look like. Again, Freud is a product of the 19th century. He cannot divorce his ideas from the world that he lives in. Um, he sees civilization as necessarily restricting sexuality, and by restricting sexuality, he sees civilization as being opposed to sexuality in some way. Probably mischaracterizing him at least a little bit, but it's worth thinking about these things. Again, treat Freud as though he is stuck in a box and we get to stand outside of it. Don't feel like you have to go into the box to wrestle with Freud. Feel free to argue with him from outside. Reject his categories. Reject his understanding. Look at what our culture has done that Freud's has not, and take that evidence into consideration as well. All right, let's move on, because we have only covered the first of our three essays here. Fortunately, the second one is really short. Um, on narcissism is just what it says on the box. We are talking about narcissism here. It is universally known, and we take it as a matter of course, that a person who is tormented by organic pain and discomfort gives up his interest in the things of the external world insofar as they do not concern his suffering. Closer observation teaches us that he also withdraws libidinal interest from his love objects. So long as he suffers, he ceases to love. In short, Freud is introducing this discussion by talking about pain and how pain drives away all of the other things that we are thinking about. We, when we are in pain, we are not worried about our self-actualization. We are not worried about, you know, our sexuality. We only care about, like, stopping the pain as soon as possible. He's introducing this because he's talking about the way that sexuality interacts with the ego in this case. How the ego, how our sort of identity... Um, is essentially narcissistic, and how given just one thing going wrong, we will immediately look at ourselves and not care about literally anything else. Sick people care about nothing and no one besides getting to be not sick anymore. Um, they are 100% inward-focused, he emphasizes. Um, now, the question he's going to actually ask in this essay is, why does this damning up of the libido in the ego have to be unpleasant? Why, why do we experience it in this way? But where we actually go, like where this essay actually turns, has a lot to do with the way that women achieve their sexuality, specifically through this sort of egoism and this damning up of their libido. So where this really gets underway is on page 164, the primary paragraph on the middle of the page there. 
A way in which we may approach the study of narcissism is by observing the erotic life of human beings with its many kinds of different differentiation in man and woman. Just as object libido at first concealed ego libido from our observation, so too in, a, in connection with the object choice of infants and of growing children, what we first noticed was that they derived their sexual objects from their experiences of satisfaction. The first autoerotic sa sexual satisfactions are experienced in connection with vital functions which serve the purpose of self-preservation. The sexual instincts are at the outset attached to the satisfaction of the ego instincts. Only later do they become independent of these, and even then we have an indication of that original attachment in the fact that the persons who are concerned with a child's feeding, care, and protection become his earliest sexual objects. That is to say, in the first instance, his mother or a substitute for her. Again, we are talking about infant sexuality. We are once again in this space where we're talking about how we attach our earliest sexual impressions and emotions to the people who are earliest around us in our life and the people who give us satisfaction of our non-sexual needs. The people who feed us, especially the mother through nursing, the people who clothe us and protect us, the people who give us a shelter, all of that. Side by side, however, with this type and source of object choice, which may be called the anaclytic or attachment type, psychoanalytic research has revealed a second type, which we were not prepared for finding. We have discovered, especially clearly in people whose libidinal development has suffered some disturbance, such as perverts and homosexuals, that in their later choice of love objects they have taken as a model not their mother, but their own selves. They are plainly seeking themselves as a love object, and are exhibiting a type of object choice which must be termed narcissistic. In this observation, we have the strongest of the reasons which, which have led us to adopt the hypothesis of narcissism. So what we are describing, and again, there's a lot of potential cultural baggage sitting on this one. What we are describing is, instead of attaching affection and sexuality to an object, as we discussed earlier, where, you know, you attach your affection to the mother, or you attach your affection to the father, or whatever the case may be, instead, the satisfaction comes from oneself, and therefore one's sexual attraction becomes attached to oneself. They are seeking themselves as love object. So instead of the attachment object uh, attachment that we saw earlier in, in the earlier essay, now we are looking at ourselves, introverted sex sexuality in some sense, and that's kind of how Floyd frequently refers to it. Like in the next essay, he'll refer to these people as inverts and perverts. Um, now, he applies this particular discussion to women, especially on page 165. A comparison of the male and female sexes then shows that there are fundamental differences between them in respect of their type of object choice, although these differences are, of course, not universal. Complete object love of the attachment type is, properly speaking, characteristic of the male. It displays the marked sexual overvaluation, which is doubtless derived from the child's original narcissism, and thus corresponds to a transference of that narcissism to the sexual object. This sexual overvaluation is the origin of the peculiar state of being in love, a state suggestive of a neurotic compulsion, which is thus traceable to an impoverishment of the ego as regards libido in favor of the love object. A different course is followed in the type of female most frequently met with, which is probably the purest and truest one. With the onset of puberty, the maturing of the female sexual organs, which up till then have been in a condition of latency, seems to bring about an intensification of the original narcissism, and this is unfavorable to the development of a true object choice with its accompanying sexual overvaluation. 
Women, especially if they grow up with good looks, develop a certain self-contentment, which compensates them for the social restrictions that are imposed upon them in their choice of object. Strictly speaking, it is only themselves that such women love, with an intensity comparable to that of the man's love for them. Nor does their need lie in the direction of loving, but of being loved, and the man who fulfills this condition is the one who finds favor with them. The importance of this type of woman for the erotic life of mankind is to be rated very high. Now, notice what we are effectively doing here. We are saying, okay, so there are two different currents in infant sexuality. On the one hand, the attachment or object choice sexuality. On the other hand, the in the internal, the narcissistic, the self-as-sexual object choice. And importantly for Freud, due to the various conditions that inform the development of male sexuality versus female sexuality, female sexuality tends to focus on the narcissistic impulse, where male sexuality focuses on the object impulse. And importantly for the women, this narcissistic impulse, this desire for the self, is buttressed by the fact that society also suggests this, that society discourages women from being sexually active and seeking out sexual objects, and instead encourages women to become sexual objects, to turn their attraction and affection and desire towards themselves. By telling them you need to look nice in order to attract a husband, by telling them you need to behave in a certain way in order to attract a husband, by putting a high value on their beauty and on their appearances, women learn to do the same to themselves and end up taking themselves as sexual object. Therefore, when they in fact seek a partner, when they in fact seek somebody to marry, they are not looking for an appropriate specimen of certain characteristics the way that men are. They are not looking for an external object. They are looking for someone who also appreciates them, who also appreciates their own beauty. Therefore, the woman's sexuality is tied not to another person, but rather to a person who appreciates her the same way that she does. Now, this is even more bullshit than the last one. Let's just start there. Like, the entire discussion of narcissism as being atta attached to perverts and homosexuals, I just don't even want to touch with a 10-foot pole. The fact that it is attached to women specifically, and that this is understood as women, like, basically falling in love with themselves... That's just totally playing into ideas of vanity that are a giant mess, and I don't even want to go there. Like, we get this wonderful line on page 166 where Freud is like, Perhaps it is not out of place here to give an assurance that this description of the feminine form of erotic life is not due to any tendentious desire on my part to deprecate women. Apart from the fact that tenden tendentiousness is quite alien to me, I know that these different lines of development correspond to the differentiation of functions in a highly complicated biological whole. Shut up, Freud! You don't get to say whether or not you're being an asshole. Like, if you are being an asshole, we will decide that for ourselves, thank you very much. And you are not exempt from the whole business that is societal judgment and psychological analysis. Like, you cannot sit there with that goddamn cigar in your mouth and tell us that it is not some sort of suppressed or repressed sexual impulse. Like, good God, man, how can you be the one person who is immune to all of this? But we're calming down, we're calming down, we're calming down. What is being suggested here has even less basis in reality, but has, if anything, an even greater significance in our culture. We still perceive the differences between men and women often in these ways. 
partially because it is trained in some cases. Again, women have not 100% freed themselves from the obligations to marry, and the culture still very much at large expects them to be sexual objects. We still objectify women in modern culture all over the place, much more than we do men. Women are still seen as things to look upon. Pornography for men is still women being looked at. Where the sort of reciprocated thing for women is not exactly the same, and it's going to be a long time until we have a sort of equivalent value here. So as much as Freud seems to be suggesting that this is all, you know, built into the natural process by which human beings develop, that this is all instinct and, you know, universal, the fact of the matter is that he is so hopelessly admired in his own society and in his own outlook that he very much cannot tell the difference between, you know, what is implanted in women genetically or through, you know, the basic conditions that surround nurture, i.e. the fact that they are, you know, have mothers and fathers are raised in, a, in certain environments, and the fact that society expects them to behave a certain way. Um, Freud doesn't bother to separate. He very much emphasizes society makes worse what is already there in infant sexuality. So you can definitely read this as being more tolerant than I am. Like, Freud could very well be saying, you know, our society is just making things worse for women. Our society is just enhancing a particular strain of women's behavior and therefore making them more and more inclined to this what he will call perverse or sort of like aberrant sexual behavior. But again, we should also keep in mind the normal, normal versus abnormal is not on discussion here. Like, Freud doesn't get to say who is normal and who is abnormal. If this is in fact affecting many women, most women, perhaps all women, um, it is certainly not abnormal in any extent of the imagination. This is a perfectly decent, perfectly normal response. And Freud once again has this sort of ideal of sexual development in mind that doesn't seem to be accessible or real or demonstrable in any sense. But I want to look at the third essay because I think Freud redeems a lot of his problems in this third essay. Um, so, today in this third essay, we are talking about civilized sexual morality and nervous illness, and I want to emphasize the quotes. Like, more than any other piece of punctuation in any of the other writings we've talked about, the fact that Freud knows to put, quote, civilized in quotes, suggests that Freud is becoming aware of something more going on behind the scenes of his sort of psychoanalytical projects here. He is recognizing it's more complex than it seems, and what he originally took for universal may not be as universal as he expected, and what he has diagnosed as natural may not be as natural as he supposed. Um, so in this essay, we're going to be talking about civilization as it is an influence in the business of neuroses, nervous illness. So he starts, generally speaking, our civilization is built up on the suppression of instincts. Each individual has surrendered some part of his possessions, some part of the sense of omnipotence or of the aggressive or vindictive inclinations in his personality. From these contributions has grown civilization's common possession of material and ideal property. Besides the exigencies of life, no doubt it has been family feelings derived from 
erotism that have induced these separate individuals to make this renunciation. The renunciation has been a progressive one in the course of evolution of civilization. The single steps in it were sanctioned by religion. The piece of instinctual satisfaction which each person had renounced was offered to the deity as a sacrifice, and the communal property thus acquired was declared sacred. The many who, in consequence of the, his unyielding constitution, cannot fall in with the suppression of instinct becomes a criminal, an outlaw in the face of society, unless his social position or his exceptional cap capacities enable him to impose upon himself upon it as a great man, a hero. Notice that we've already got a hint here that Freud has changed tactics here. Notice that he conflates criminality with heroism. The no usual normative boundary is gone in this case. Freud seems to be seeing people only in relation to the way that civilization, society sees them, and not according to some objective normative standard that he is imposing. So, what is he saying? We are talking about suppression here. Civilization, by its very nature, suppresses our freedom, suppresses our instincts. We cannot just go around murdering and fucking our way to happiness in a civilized society because civilized society protects people from that sort of wild behavior. Um, therefore, we cannot just give rise to whatever sexual or, you know, violent impulse we feel, and thus we are, to some degree, suppressed. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, this is just the nature of civilization. It's probably not great for people to go around, you know, murdering and fucking their way to happiness. Um, civilization demands more, and we are probably happier as a consequence. But this balance is what we are going to be talking about today. Now, Fred has a way of talking about how one sort of takes one's initial instincts and impulses and turns them to societally friendly purposes. This is sublimation. So on page 168, about three lines down, he says, This capacity to exchange its originally sexual aim for another one, which is no longer sexual, but which is psychically related to the first aim, is called the capacity for sublimation. In contrast to this displaceability, in which its value for civilization lies, the sexual instinct may also exhibit a particularly obstinate fixation, which renders it unserviceable, and which sometimes causes it to degenerate into what are described as abnormalities. The original strength of the sexual instinct probably varies in each individual. Certainly the proportion of it which is suitable for sublimation varies. But, he emphasizes a little further down, to extend this process of displacement indefinitely is, however, certainly not possible, any more than is the case with the transformation of heat into mechanical en energy in our machines. What Freud is saying is there is an outlet for sexual energy that is otherwise unacceptable to society, namely sublimation. And this is where Freud explains, like, this is why people write poetry, and this is why people make bridges, and this is why people, you know, create cities, and this is why people write operas. Like, all of this is the product of the sublimation of our sexual and, you know, otherwise unacceptable energies. Presumably aggression and violence fall into there as well. That's usually how it is described. Um, however... Freud emphasizes that there are two problems with sublimation. Namely, there are certain people, certain sexualities, certain sexual desires that refuse to be sublimated, particularly obstinate fixations, he describes, which leads into abnormal, abnormal sexual behavior as it is described. And notice, again, Freud is careful here, into what are described as abnormalities. He is no longer just saying abnormal sexual behavior. He is distancing himself from the diagnoses that he himself has made in earlier essays. But also, in addition to there being these obstinate sexual fixations, there are also 
just limits. You cannot sublimate all sexual energy. It is not possible to do all of this. A certain amount of direct sexual satisfaction seems to be indispensable for most organizations, and a deficiency in this amount, which varies from individual to individual, is visited by phenomena which, on account of their detrimental effects on functioning and their subjective quality of unpleasure, must be regarded as an illness. In short, because you cannot sublimate all of your sexual desires, you must have an outlet for them. And if the outlet that you find for them is not sufficient to those sexual desires, you will experience mental illness, neurosis, as he will explain it, uh, both in the title and elsewhere. Um, now, we get into some more of our usual explanations for how sexuality and libido works and how it is developed in, in children. Um, we get a particularly interesting observation here, though. Um, so, the, the bottom paragraph on page 168, about four lines down-ish, um, when we take a new... Well, We'll start from the beginning. Further prospects are opened up when we take into consideration the fact that in man, the sexual instinct does not originally serve the purposes of reproduction at all, but has as its aim the gaining of particular kinds of pleasure. Notice that Freud is already distancing, again, civilization from sexuality here. We are searching for pleasure in sexuality. Civilization only values sexuality for its reproductive function. It manifests itself in this way in human infancy, during which it attains its aim of gaining pleasure not only from the genitals, but from other parts of the body, the erotogenic zones, and can therefore disregard any objects other than these convenient ones. We call this stage the stage of autoerotism, and the child's upbringing has, in our view, the task of restricting it, because to linger in it would make the sexual instinct uncontrollable and unserviceable later on. Notice what Freud is saying here, and Foucault was also very attentive to what is being said here. Freud is arguing that autoerotism is a bad thing. He doesn't even distance himself from it in this particular case. He says, in our view, and doesn't seem to accept this as being like some kind of our separate from Freud himself. We need to restrict autoerotism. We need to restrict childhood masturbation. We need to make sure that this is not the only outlet for a child's sexual satisfaction, lest they be unable to express the sexual instinct properly through actual sexual congress later on in life. This is important for Freud, and it's important for us as well. Notice, civilization is inconvenienced by childhood autoerotism, and therefore it needs to be curtailed. It needs to be restricted, or else the sexual instinct is going to be uncontrollable and unprofitable for civilized purposes. Keep this in mind. Um, we are not perfect here, even so. Now, he moves on a little bit later to this, discussing the stages of civilization itself. On page 169, the first full paragraph, if this evolution of the sexual instinct is born in mind, three stages of civilization can be distinguished. A first one, in which the sexual instinct may be freely exercised without regard to the aims of reproduction. A second, in which all of the sexual instinct is suppressed, except what serves the aims of reproduction. And a third, in which only legitimate reproduction is allowed as a sexual aim. This third stage is reflected in our present day, again, quote, civilized sexual morality. 
So three stages of civilization. We start with no restrictions on sexuality whatsoever. We move to all sexuality is restricted unless it serves reproduction. And then at last, we restrict it even further to legitimate reproduction, i.e. we do not want babies born out of wedlock. We do not want babies born without a father. You know, all of these sorts of dimensions of, of reproduction are also unacceptable because they are unprofitable to society. And Freud remarks, in the third stage where only legitimate reproduction is acceptable, this is the stage that we exist in now. This is what we call civilized morality. Now, Freud remarks that as a consequence of this development, as civilization has matured, we get two kinds of harmful deviation from normal sexuality, he calls it in the next paragraph. That is, sexuality which is serviceable to civilization come about, and the relation between these two is almost that of positive and negative. So if normal sexuality is productive to civilization, i.e. it produces children and it can be controlled in such a way that everyone in civilization benefits in some sense, whatever that means, we get two potential deviations. In the first place, disregarding people whose sexual instinct is altogether excessive and uninhibitable, there are the different varieties of perverts in whom an infantile fixation to a preliminary sexual aim has prevented the primacy of the reproductive function from being established, and the homosexuals, or inverts, in whom, in a manner that is not yet quite understood, the sexual aim has been deflected away from the opposite sex. So we have two potential deviations from garden variety sexuality that is productive for civilization. We get perverts who are focused on objects that are not profitable, be it either fetishes or whatever you want to describe it as, um, and if they are not using their sexuality for reproductive purposes and they are not therefore benefiting the society as a whole. So, and as well as like fetishes and masturbation, we also get like people who are adulterers or people who are widely, you know, having sex without any regard for who they are having sex with and therefore for the fate of whatever children may come about through this sexuality. And also the inverts and homosexuals, i.e. we are not having sex with the right people. Um, now again, Freud seems to suggest that these are abnormal behaviors, and he doesn't apologize about this. Again, homosexuality is considered an aberration. It is considered unprofitable sexuality. And notice, throughout, as much as Freud is going to question it a little bit later on, we are assuming that society is a good thing and sexuality for the purposes of society, i.e. reproduction, is also a good thing. The argument that he's going to present is not that society is bad and we should get rid of it. The argument that he's going to make is that society is so restrictive, so repressive, that it's actually going to defeat its own ends. It is going to destroy itself in some sense. Um, so if we skip forward, because we are quickly running out of time here, on page 171 we get this wonderful paragraph where Freud really encapsulates everything that has gone on so far without being a judgmental dick about it. It is one of the obvious social injustices that the standard of civilization should demand from everyone the same conduct of sexual life, conduct which can be followed without difficulty by some people, thanks to their organization, but which imposes the heaviest psychical sacrifices on others, though indeed the injustice is as a rule wiped out by disobedience to the injunctions of morality. So what he's basically saying here is that civilization imposes conformity in one's sexual behavior on people. And this is not to say that it is purely restricted to the 19th century. The 19th century was especially restrictive. Freud 
Floyd obviously can't acknowledge this because he's right stuck in the middle of it and doesn't know what the alternatives are. Um, certainly by our lights, 19th century Victorian-esque society um, was very restrictive. But at the same time, that's not to say that we are now liberated or enlightened, as Foucault is quick to point out. Um, Foucault would definitely point out, we still have lots of hang-ups. We still do not accept incest. We do not accept pedophilia. We have lots and lots of behaviors that are considered societally wrong, and in many cases, for good reason. Like, that not every kind of sexuality should be tolerated. Freud is not saying that all sex is good. Foucault is not saying that all sex is good. The functioning of society requires that certain sexual appetites be curtailed, be repressed. We cannot let people go around raping one another without any restrictions whatsoever. That should be punished in some sense. And Freud acknowledges that some of these sexual deviations are just done. Like, they disobey. It doesn't matter to them. The sexual impulse is either so strong that they are perverts, which includes the category of rapists and pedophiles for, for Freud, um, or it, and it very much includes people who are, in fact, violating these, these rules for, that are in place for good reason. Um, but, for all of that, Freud has three questions to pose here, on the bottom of page 171. First off, what is the task that is set to the individual by the requirements of the third stage of civilization? Second, can the legitimate sexual satisfaction that is permissible offer acceptable compensation for the renunciation of all other satisfactions? And third, in what relation do the possible injurious effects of this renunciation stand to its exploitation in the cultural field? And not to get too bound up in the actual language here, the answer to his first question is on page 172 to 173-ish, and this is specifically that there are a lot of requirements imposed on people. Uh, everybody is required by social injunction to be abstinent until they are able to marry, at which point they are only allowed to have sex with their spouse and only in certain fashions. Again, like anal penetration is not acceptable in Victorian society because it does not produce children. It does not produce offspring. Christianity is all against this, as confused as it may be on the subject, and it is also against the law in many cases. Um, what Freud then comes to is, if in fact abstinence is the watchword for most of one's adult life, um, if the sort of sexual relationship is defined by the walls that are in place preventing you from having sex freely, then what is, does it work? Like, does it actually service the needs? Question two, can the legitimate sexual satisfaction that is permissible offer acceptable compensation? Freud's answer, answer to this question, though, is no. Marriage is not an acceptable outlet, certainly not in the framework that we have here. Freud points out that there are lots of problems um, that this requirement of abstinence is not good preparation for marriage. Like, it sort of hampers, it cripples people from experiencing, you know, proper sexual satisfaction in marriage, um, both for men and women. On the one hand, men have, end up having these double lives, which he describes on page 173. The double sexual morality which is valid for men in our society is the plainest admission that society itself does not believe in the possibility of enforcing the precepts which it itself has laid down. 
Society does not expect men to be 100% faithful. There is a sort of double standard in place, where men are allowed to frequent prostitutes, are allowed to engage in adulterous affairs, are allowed to engage in fornication before marriage, and it is even expected of them in, to some degree. Um, what's more, he even mentions a little bit later on that women expect men to be a little bit more sexually active, a little bit more sexually prepared for marriage, and they see that as a plus to some degree. So it is clearly the case that or the society's restrictions on sexuality are not actually all that beneficial to society's aims of having proper reproductive sexuality, where marriage produces children which are then advantageous to the development of civilization altogether. But women Women are totally shit on. And Freud is very observant to this. Um, as he points out a little later on from where we were reading on page 173, experience shows, I repeat, that women, when they are subjected to the disillusionments of marriage, fall ill of severe neuroses which permanently darken their lives. Under the cultural conditions of today, marriage has long ceased to be a panacea for the nervous troubles of women, and if we doctors still advise marriage in such cases, we are nevertheless aware that, on the contrary, a girl must be very healthy if she is to be able to tolerate it, and we urgently advise our male patients not to marry any girl who has had nervous trouble before marriage. On the contrary, the cure for nervous illness arising from marriage would be marital unfaithfulness. But the more strictly a woman has been brought up, and the more sternly she has submitted to the demands of civilization, the more she is afraid of taking this way out. And in the conflict between her desires and her sense of duty, she once more seeks refuge in her neurosis. A woman has literally no outlet for her sexual energy. She is prescribed abstinence, as Nietzsche pointed out in our last discussion, until the day of her marriage, at which point she is supposed to magically transform into a sex fiend and be totally okay with it. And the attachments involved are incredibly destructive. Um, the conclusion that Freud comes to, he lists on the first full paragraph on page 174, even if the damage done by civilized sexual morality is admitted, it may be argued in reply to our third question that the cultural gain derived from such an extensive restriction of sexuality probably more than balances these sufferings, which, after all, only affect a minority in any severe form. But he doesn't agree with this argument. He concludes on page 175 that preparation for marriage frustrates the aims of marriage itself. All of these restrictions, all of these prohibitions, all of these claims that you have to reserve yourself sexually for marriage ultimately serve only to make marriage worse. And as a consequence, there is zero healthy sexual outlet here. The people who are withholding their sexuality for marriage ultimately end up so stymied, so caught up in their restrictions and repressions and suppressions, in their associations with, of sexuality with the base or the profane or the wrong, that they end up debasing their wives, or they end up frigid to their husbands, or they end up searching for adulterous relationships, which ultimately destroy the very function that society was supposed to be enforcing here. As Freud concludes in the next paragraph, when society pays for obedience to its far-reaching regulations by an increase in nervous illness, it cannot claim to have purchased a gain at the price of sacrifices. It cannot claim a gain at all. 
Let us, for instance, consider the very common case of a woman who does not love her husband because, owing to the conditions under which she entered marriage, she has no reason to love him, but who very much wants to love him because that alone corresponds to the ideal of marriage to which she has been brought up. She will in that case suppress every impulse which would express the truth and contradict her endeavors to fulfill her ideal, and she will make special efforts to play the part of a loving, affectionate, and attentive wife, and the outcome of this self-suppression will be neurotic illness, and the neuroses will in short time have taken revenge on the unloved husband, and have caused him just as much lack of satisfaction and worry as would have resulted from an acknowledgement of the true state of affairs. It doesn't work, Freud says. This whole sexual repressive system that civilization has enforced does not work. It makes marriage worse, it makes sex worse, it restricts our sexual satisfaction, and it causes widespread neuroses everywhere, across the board. On page 176, the last paragraph, he concludes, In view of this, we may well raise the question whether our civilized sexual morality is worth the sacrifice which it imposes on us, especially if we are still so much enslaved to hedonism as to include among the aims of our cultural development a certain amount of satisfaction of individual happiness. It is certainly not a physician's business to come forward with proposals for reform, but it seemed to me that I might support the urgency of such proposals if I were to amplify von Ehrenfeld's description of the injurious effects of our civilized sexual morality by pointing to the important bearing of that morality upon the spread of modern nervous illness. Notice what Freud is saying there. I am a physician. I am a doctor. It is not my job to prescribe political reform. But there is no way around it in this case. Sexuality, as restricted as it is here in the 19th century, is not healthy. It is not productive. It is just defeating society's own goals of having sexuality serve the end of reproduction, and it is not healthy. The people involved are suffering from widespread nervous illness and widespread suffering and widespread unhappiness with their sexual behavior. They are causing pain to themselves and to others, and this is because of society's restrictions. Now, I want to stress that Freud is very much arguing against the 19th century restrictions surrounding sexuality, and very much these have been to some degree corrected. There are two potential additions that we need to make here. One, again, there are lots of people who the restrictions that have been lifted are not enough. That, you know, the people, people who are in fact so far from the center of human sexuality that they desire things that society simply cannot approve of. People who seek rape or who want pedophilia, whose only satisfaction can be in these violently, you know, anti-civilized, anti-social behaviors, to put it in the only way that I can think of to put it, that is mildly tolerant of what is actually going on here. Likewise, if you look at the 21st century, we are not you know, suddenly cured of all of our neuroses. They are still haunting us. Which means one of two things. Either these repressive tendencies are still very much in force, or that wasn't the problem. And I want to kind of point out, like, on the one hand, I absolutely admire Freud for taking a stand here. For, you know, looking at the evidence and saying, okay, it's time to stop branding people as abnormal. It's time to stop imposing these restrictions on sexuality. It is time to actually look at what's happening to the people in this, in our society and address, 
you know, what is causing them such harm? Why is this bad? And if, in fact, our morality is getting in the way of basic sexual, you know, satisfaction, then there's something wrong with our morality. I respect that. I admire that. I say that as a Christian who adopts a particularly restrained sexual morality. I recognize that Freud is doing something brave, something good here. I also think that it's not the end of the conversation. Freud is observing a phenomenon through his biased, distorted lens and coming to conclusions about it in a biased and distorted way. He is not over all of the, you know, sexual liberation that he seems to be prescribing here. He still thinks that all homosexuality is wrong. He still thinks that all of this is abnormal and deviant and bad for society. He is not perfect. He is still assuming a lot about what constitutes mental health, what a, quote, normal person looks like, and what, quote, normal sexuality looks like. In order for us to properly answer these questions, we have to be more than scientists. We have to be more than psychologists. We have to be philosophers, in a sense. Ethics is not what physicians are supposed to do. Freud acknowledges this. Freud, like, accepts this. In order to conduct ethics, in order for us to say what one should do, what one ought to do in one's relationships, and one's love relationships. Whether one is, you know, psychologically normal, whatever that means, or psych psychologically perverse, whatever that means, whatever that means, the ethics ultimately will have much more to do with bigger picture analyses of the human being, the human psyche, the human society, human civilization. We are going to have to look at more than just Freud alone can look at. And the problem that I've frequently see in contemporary society is that we perceive ourselves through Freud's light and through Freud's lens alone. We cannot get over ourselves as sexual beings. We cannot look past our sexuality as the constituent focus of our identity. If we keep doing that, we will be frustrated. Because as Freud is pointing out here, it would seem that sexuality doesn't have a solution. There is no healthy sexuality. There just isn't. We are so constituted, our circumstances are so constituted, that no matter what solution we come up with to our sexuality, it will be, to some degree, unsatisfactory. We will always want more, in short. And we need to, on some level, be okay with that. That's a philosophical conclusion, not a psychological one. Although I imagine that many psychologists, if they're doing their jobs, recognize this as well. But the last thing I want to sort of address, because we are way over time on this one, and I kind of figured that this would be the case, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about Sartre, which, oh well. Like, he doesn't have that much that's important, I guess. Oh my. This is the end of our conversation about the historical attitudes towards sexuality. Freud represents our endpoint. From now on in this class, we're going to be talking about the 20th century and the 21st century. We're going to be looking at what I very much consider our culture, and especially the various DV, like groups in our culture. They're, our 20th century world does not have one attitude towards love and sexuality and friendship. We have many. We have a diversity 
of attitudes towards love, sexuality, and friendship. And I'm hoping to capture at least a few of the major dominant ones, a few of the very important ideas that our 20th century perspective has to observe and to add to all of the philosophy and history that has gone before. But each of those philo philosophical programs, whether it's the neo-Christians that like we'll talk about next time, or the feminists, or the sort of queer theory and you know the, the complex issues there, or even Foucault's whole sort of summary project, all of these are to some degree as much syntheses of what has gone before as they are sort of philosophies in their own right. And they too are bound. They are trapped by all of the history that we have talked about up until this point. Our culture is Freud, and it is Dante, and it is Goethe, and it is Plato, and it is Aristotle, and it is Cicero, and it is Aquinas, and Augustine, and Jesus, and Moses, and all of these various thinkers, all of these various philosophers bring us to this point. You don't have to be a Freudian, is what I want to say. It is a dominant attitude in our world. It is not necessarily the right one, and as I've hopefully shown, it is certainly not the only option. You do not have to love in a specific way. You do not have to understand love in a specific way. You can understand it the way that Dante did, or you can understand it the way that Goethe did, or you can understand the way that John did, or you can understand it the way that Augustine did, or you can understand it the way that Plato did, or any one of the characters in Plato's Symposium did. All of these are different attitudes, and I encourage you, if you are dissatisfied with Freud's perspective, which I can't blame you, Freud himself is dissatisfied with his perspective, Freud himself thinks that he does not have a solution here, then leave Freud behind. Choose somebody else. So much of how we deal with our own sexuality and with our own love has to do with our outlook on these subjects. We are not slaves the way that Freud makes us out to be. Yes, our sexuality may never be fulfilled. We decide what that means for us. And a good psychologist, a good therapist, will help you to do that. He will help, he or she will help you to, you know, fix yourself, not in the sense of, like, you are broken, but in the sense of stick yourself to something. Make a conviction that you can live with, that fits with your life. Literally the other day in class, I had students come to me and say that they were hoping that by taking this class, they would find some kind of uh, hope, some new faith, some renewed um, hope that sexuality could, in fact, mean something to them, that love could, in fact, be restored in their eyes. And I honestly don't know if I can do that. I'm certainly not around for this purpose. This is not what they pay me for. It is way above my pay grade. What I can offer, though, is different perspectives. If what, is, if what you think about love and sexuality isn't working for you, maybe think differently. Train yourself to think differently. Get out of the habit of thinking yourself as just this you know, animalistic sexual being in the style of Schopenhauer and Freud, and maybe adopt an atomistic view where you are, you know, higher than your sexuality, or perhaps adopt a Dante-esque view where you attach sort of eternal significance to your love and, and affection. Don't get stuck in one perspective. 
philosophy is all about recognizing the alternatives out there. Because, as David Foster Wallace put it in one of his essays, the prisoner, or when you are unable to sort of think in these multiple different ways, you are like a prisoner who doesn't even know that they are locked up. You likely have been persisting in the assumption that love only exists as one thing, that it can only be practiced in one way. And you are likely quietly hoping to achieve whatever that idealistic version of Freud's is where you are sexually satisfied and complete. And Freud himself admits that's not a thing. Don't chase after an illusion. Build something else for yourself. Decide for yourself what meaning is going to look like in your relationships. And don't be dogmatic about it. Life is going to throw curveballs at you. You definitely do not know what you're doing. Definitely build in some adaptability there. Like the first lesson anyone will tell you who has been married for any period of time and calls it successful is that you will be surprised and you will be frustrated and whatever assumptions you have going into a relationship will inevitably be thrown out when you actually enter it and you will do so willingly the more restrictive you are the more you are confined in the way that you think about these things the less happy you are likely to be because love doesn't make sense Love doesn't have some rational conclusion attached to it. Love doesn't have one sole solitary purpose. Instead, see what it means. Like, explore these ideas. See not, you know, don't, don't restrict love to one of these programs. Look at how these different programs can inform your relationships, can inform your love. How you can be a better lover as a consequence. I hope that's helpful. Um, and I hope that does sort of kick us out of this very restrictive Freudian mindset. And again, I hope I have, you know, given Freud a fair shake on this one. Like, I don't want to actually dump on him all the time. What I do want to dump on is people who sort of take him as gospel without any sort of even knowledge that that's what they're doing. I don't want you to be a prisoner of a certain mindset or perspective. I want you to see what's on display, what the world has offered, what options are out there. And I know that we typically think in terms of, oh, well, homosexuality, polyamory, and all of these other potential ways to do relationships. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean at all. I think that's just more Freud. I think that is ultimately just a new kind of acknowledgement that, yes, we are all supposed to be sexually complex, sexually fulfilled people. I really, on some level, don't think that's possible. And I don't think I'm a pessimist for thinking that. I look to more than sexuality for my answers. And as much as Freud seems to have solidified, he doesn't even remark on the difference between sexuality and love. He seems to think they are exactly the same thing. I encourage you not to. I encourage you to look beyond it. I encourage you to understand yourself differently and to let yourself be more flexible than that. I hope that helps. 
So for next week, we're going to start in on our 20th century philosophies and their perspectives on history and all of the things that we've discussed about. We will start with one that is near and dear to my heart and probably one of the most informative to my own personal life. Namely, we're going to talk about neo-Christendom, which is basically a term that I came up with myself. We're basically going to look at some 20th century Christians, looking at the way that Christianity has changed, and simultaneously pairing sort of the history of Christendom and the best of what historical Christendom has to offer with the best of what modern society and what modern philosophy has to offer. We'll get a new attitude on love, we'll get a renewed emphasis on Christian values, and I think it's actually really helpful and really insightful. So next week, it's Chesterton and Lewis. I look forward to talking to you about it.